Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Ask Christopher West Podcast. I am here with my beloved wife, Wendy, my co-host. So happy to be back with you. It has been absolutely gorgeous here in southeastern Pennsylvania. Yeah. The weather has been just sparkling, blue skies, not too hot, uh, even though summer is upon us, breezes blowing, and that means manure smell in the air. Yes, we live amongst farms, many Amish farms. They definitely uh, still plow the field and fertilize with manure, which... I you know we've talked to some more modern technique farmers who say they don't even plow anymore. They yeah. like inject seed and fertilizer with a special planter that doesn't even require turning over the earth. So, you know, we're amongst very old-fashioned farmers. If you here. have seen the movie Witness with Harrison Ford from the 80s, that's right where we live. The farm where that was filmed is is not too far from our house actually. We have a, a funny story I was going to ask Wendy if you would share with our listeners. When we first moved here in 2003 and we met our Amish neighbors yeah. for the first time. Yeah, I think as you could imagine, if you were meeting Amish people face-to-face in close quarters for the first time, there might be some nervousness, awkwardness on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I think we've definitely experienced that. And we we sure did that first day. We went, you know, across the street. Um, yeah, they've I, been very friendly over the years, bring us Christmas cookies and yes. pies and stuff. But yeah. this was our first Our very first, our very introduction. first introduction, yeah. And our kids, especially our two oldest boys, who were only six and four at the time, were excited to see the farm and, you know... They're almost 22 and 20 now. Can you believe that? I know. It's crazy. It is. It is. So as we walked into the Amish neighbor's house, we entered in an area you might kind of call like a mudroom. So they had their kind of farm boots and farm clothes hanging on the floor and on the wall right there as we came into the house. And it really smelled like manure. I mean, that's what was on the the boots and clothes. Sure did. Yeah. So we're just walking into and being greeted by the other people that were in the house. And, you know, there was a warm, excited feeling in the air of new neighbors. And and our son, John Paul, was had a big smile on his face as he said, Wow. This place smells like... And I was a few steps behind him, and I was like, oh, no, 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 don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. He had certainly, at that age, heard the S-H-I-T word come out of my mouth once or twice, yeah. or more, and uh, <laughs> I was afraid that he was going to say, this place smells like... Sh- <laughs> yeah. And so we had no control. There it was. There it was whatever was going to come say. out was going to come out. And I was like, oh no, this is going to go not well. Yes, and we were nervous, but thank God. Thank the you, Lord. word that came to him, it smells like, like a, a farm. farm. <laughs> and the relief like, laughter oh, oh, that we had. Oh, oh thank you, God. 
jump up. Thank you, God. We can have a party. It sure does it smell like does a farm. It does smell like a farm. Right. You're exactly right. Uh, well, it smells like a farm out here today. It sure does. It always smells like a farm it where we does. live. It does. It does. But, you know, it, we call it like the Lancaster County perfume or something. <laughs> you know, kind of. It's okay. You get used to that smell. So. On that note. <laughs> What do our questions smell like today? Hey, what do our questions smell like? Well, I have a question. I don't want to get distracted by the smell theme. So. Yes, okay. Regroup. Okay. Yes. We are regrouping. Right. <laughs> we are inhaling clean air right now. That's right. Here we have a question from a listener named Shanna. Who Hi, asks, Shanna. Can you please, please is in all capital I don't letters. know. I have to can know what the question is. Can you please shed theology of the body light on priesthood? As a vocation for men only. Oh, sure. She says, I get this question so often. I vaguely recall one of the best explanations I've heard was at an event where you were speaking. But she she wants it refreshed. Please explain. Okay, let's push the refresh button, Shanna, Mm -hmm. on this. Yeah, so let's just acknowledge this. Unless priesthood has something explicit to do with the specific difference of the male from the female, then it is sexism and prejudice that would keep the church from allowing a woman to be a priest. Unless priesthood really has something to do with the specific difference of male and female. So the question here really is, where does the sexual difference matter And does that have something to do, essentially, with priesthood? So let's ask that first question. Where does the sexual difference matter? Women are absolutely right to stand up collectively. Finally, they did so in the 20th century. And and fight where the difference of the sexes, historically, had been exaggerated to favor men. Yes, so that women didn't seem to have gifts and intelligence and ideas that were worth attention at all. Yeah. And who suffered because of that prejudice and sexism? We all did. Right. Uh, Men have suffered because of that because we didn't benefit from those enriching gifts of women. So is there anything inherent in femininity that keeps her from being a doctor, a lawyer, an astronaut? No, no, no. President of the United States? No, I don't see anything that that would say a woman can't do that. But there is one thing a woman can't ever do because it's something only a man can do, and that's be a father. Mm -hmm. Just like I will never be pregnant, it's impossible. I don't have a womb. I don't have ovaries. I have testicles. There's a. This is where the difference matters. Where does the difference matter? in the call to holy communion and fatherhood and motherhood. Mm -hmm. And by holy communion, I mean, as the scripture says, the two becoming one flesh. So a man will never be a woman. Uh, A woman will never be a man. A man will never be a mother. Uh, uh, um, A woman will never be a a father. So the question here is, does priesthood have something specifically and intrinsically to do with fatherhood? And the answer to that question is yes. And here's how. Now, first, let's say this. We are 
all priests by virtue of our baptism. We share in the priesthood of Christ, right? We have the masculine and the feminine element that by virtue of our baptism, we all share in. I'm a male, but I'm baptized, and inasmuch as I'm baptized, I can say I am bride of Christ in the sense of the bridal ship, if you will, of all believers. Okay. The bridal ship. I don't even know if that's a word. I just made it up, but maybe it's a word. The bridehood, the bridal ship, the bridalness. What's what <laughs> am I? Everybody knows what I mean, right? So the the I I I shouldn't be threatened to say I'm a bride in in as much as I share in the the nature of baptism as a member of the church. And a woman can also rightly say, not only is she bride, she can rightly say, I am priest in as much as I've been baptized and I share in the priesthood of all believers. And in that sense, by priesthood, I think it refers specifically to kind of the, the making the offering and mm-hmm. the intercession mm-hmm. from between earth and heaven. Am I kind of on to we, that? We or? share in that, just as the, but here we do need to make the distinction between the ordained priesthood and the priesthood of all believers. But the ordained priest at the mass invites the priesthood of all believers to make the offering with him. Okay. Right? But you need an ordained priest to be the mm-hmm. essential offering, the, the one who offers essentially. Okay. And here's why. Because the Eucharist is the consummation of a marriage. Mm -hmm. The Eucharist is where the bridegroom, Christ, and the bride, the church, become one flesh. And it's where the bride, the church, conceives eternal life within her. And this is very important, this passage where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you are regenerated, unless you are born anew. And Nicodemus says, well, well can, I, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't get what I'm talking about? He says, Nicodemus, if you don't understand the natural reality, you're never going to understand the supernatural reality. So Jesus himself here is basing entrance into the kingdom on a proper understanding of the natural reality of generation. Mm -hmm. Because grace, the supernatural reality, builds on nature. Priesthood is a supernatural kind of fatherhood. It's not a career choice. It's not the same as a woman saying, I can be a doctor, I can be a lawyer, I can be an astronaut, I can be a priest. If priesthood were just a career choice, if priesthood were just about running and managing a parish, then absolutely bring all the feminine gifts into that because the church needs that. But where is, this, where is the sexual difference essential? Where does it matter? It matters in the natural level in generation. Sperm and egg. Mm-hmm. I become a father, you become a mother. When we, become, when we became one flesh, it happened five times. Mm-hmm. Actually, we've become one flesh more than five times, but we've only conceived five times. Mm-hmm. So isn't that funny when you learn that your parents had sex <laughs> more times than the number of kids in your family? You're kind of shocked by that. At least I was. Um, <laughs> anyway, side note, back on track. Priesthood is a supernatural regeneration of giving the seed. For a woman to attempt to confer the Eucharist, the relationship would now be bride to bride. The congregation is the bride, the priest is the bridegroom. And it's the bridegroom who gives up the body. It's the bridegroom who gives that seed that leads to new life. 
where does a priest or where does a man train to be a priest? He trains in the in the seminary. In the seminary. Look at that word. It's the man who gives the seed. It's the man who inseminates. The last time I checked, a woman can't do that. This is where the sexual difference matters. I, I sometimes jokingly say, but it's not so much a joke. It's, it's a joke with a very important point. I think it would be clarifying if the church also explained that women religious who you know, represent the bride mm-hmm. in a very specific, concrete way, it would be fitting if they trained in the ovinary, so to speak, <laughs> right? There would be a proper parallel where we would see the sexual difference. Mm. What is true in the natural order is the foundation for the supernatural order. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're confused in the natural order, which we are very much so in the world right now, when we think, for example, that two women can get married, we also think a woman can be a priest for the same reason, because we don't see the essential meaning of the sexual difference. Mm-hmm. So what is the essential meaning of the sexual difference? It's for the purpose of union and generation. That's the natural reality, and Jesus uses that to build the supernatural reality of the kingdom. Yeah. I, I'll just share this one final thing. I, I once had a woman come up to me at a talk I was giving, and she said, she said, I can do everything a man can do. And I said, well, you, could, you can't be a father. And she said, the only thing I don't have is a penis. Okay, yes, exactly. That's what is required for fatherhood mm-hmm. and testicles too. And, and the church takes this to its very natural, logical conclusion. Testicles are necessary to be a priest. In fact, functioning testicles are necessary to be a priest. A man. This used to be in the old code of canon law very explicitly that a castrated man cannot be ordained a priest. Mm. And that goes back to the Old Testament where it was talking about the lamb of sacrifice mm-hmm. had to be an unblemished male that had its male member and its testicles intact. Mm-hmm. The fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ, the high priest. Jesus was really a male. He really had what it took to generate new life. This is essential for his priesthood and for the priestly revelation of the eternal fatherhood of God. Again, that's where the sexual difference matters. Absolutely. I think for some of our listeners who maybe haven't heard that before or thought about that before, it could seem sort of unjust. Like, why aren't you letting this castrated man, maybe it's not his fault. You know, that may be sort of a side point from the, the point that was being asked in the question, but I just find myself wondering if you could say a little bit more about Sure. There being physical requirements for living out of vocation. I yeah. Think. So, I mean, it's the same in married life. Mm-hmm. A castrated man cannot be validly married in the church mm-hmm. because you need to be, you need to have the ability to become one flesh mm-hmm. to be married mm-hmm. because marriage is the love, the specific kind of love. It's not merely a friendship. Mm-hmm. It's not merely a, a partnership. There are all kinds of love, right? Yeah. But we've lost sight of this in the modern world because, you know, the slogan out there, love is love, that's a slogan that, that is, is slyly appealing to our sense of a desire for justice and equality, 
but obfuscating and, and masking that there are really important distinctions. There are different kinds of love. Right. The love between a mother and a child is different than the love between a husband and a wife. Yes. The love between an uncle and a nephew is different than the love between a husband and a wife. The love between uh, two brothers is different than the love between a husband and a wife. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are, there are situations in which you know, genital expression is not love at all. It's in fact, in fact entirely inappropriate right. in many, many relationships. In what kind of relationship is genital activity appropriate? It's the marital relationship. And specifically, the relationship in which genitals unite. The organs of male and female allow the male and female to become one organism. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're getting into to all kinds of, of ramifications for confusion. Or there are, put it this way, there are so many ramifications culturally and theologically and sacramentally when we don't understand the basic function of the male-female difference. Mm. Back to the question about why you need your male member either to be married or to be a priest, it's precisely because matter matters. It's not that a castrated man cannot love. Mm-hmm. Of course he can love. Yes. But that wouldn't be marital love. Mm-hmm. Because marital love is a specific kind of love. Mm-hmm. It's the love by which a man and a woman become one flesh. And you need to be able to become one flesh to be married. Now, you could be married, you could consummate your union, and then be in an accident and be castrated. Your marriage is valid already. Mm-hmm. We're saying someone who's not yet married. Right, in order to, to receive that sacrament. To receive that sacrament. Mm-hmm. If you've already received the sacrament. It's lifelong. It's lifelong, yeah. right. So, yes, this is the physicality of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. This is theology of the body. In order to be capable of being a father in the spirit, sacramentally, you must be capable of being a father in the flesh. That is, you have to have a male member and you have to have testicles. Mm. Uh, This is how important our sexuality Mm -hmm. is to our spirituality. Yeah. It's all intertwined. Yeah. And when you see it, it's a glorious whole. Mm -hmm. And you you begin to see the whole physical world differently. And I think one of the things it just, it kind of assumes is all, it's in the foundation of our faith. God saw everything he had made and it was very good. It was very good. Very good that we have the sexual difference. Amen. And so all of this is not in any way a rejection no, of one no. sex or another. It's a it's a, a discover the goodness of your yes, own sex. That's the it's, invitation. It's God's beautiful rejoicing in his creation as good, made with a purpose that is beautifully fulfilled, and we can yeah, just give thanks and praise to him for each of us being made as he made us with his purpose. Wendy, that is so important what you just said, that this is a matter, and this is what's so often lost in the, the conversations going on today, that it's a matter really and truly of coming to rejoice in the unique goodness of being a woman, the unique goodness of being a man. Let's just turn the tables for a minute. You have the privilege as a woman of bearing new life in your womb, of giving birth, of nursing at the breast. I will never, ever, ever, ever experience that. What an astounding privilege you have. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I could get mad at God for not giving me that privilege. In fact, I am mad at God for it, and I'm going to start a petition, Men for Pregnant Men, and I'm going to collect signatures around the world and send it to the Pope, and I'm going to demand that the Pope let me get pregnant. And the Pope would respond rightly by saying, Christopher, I have no authority to change the order of God. And he would invite me to rejoice in being a man because that's who God made me to be. If you're a woman out there and you don't rejoice in being a woman, or if you're a man and you don't rejoice in being a man, then there's a a, a journey of healing that that you're invited upon. Uh, We're all in need of, of that journey of healing, of coming to a deeper and deeper place of rejoicing in the goodness of being who God really made us to be. That is so lacking in the world today. I know we, we cut the number of questions we were able to answer short last time because I talked so long. So let's, let's move along to the next question. Here we go. An anonymous question. As a man, how do I know if the way I look at a beautiful woman is chaste or lustful? Is it wrong to look at those parts of the woman's body? He just says those parts. Those parts. Uh, with a chaste and pure intention, even if my body reacts the same or similar way as if it were a lustful look. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a funny story I heard <laughs> some years ago. I don't know what this has to do with Texas, but I was in Texas, and this guy comes up to me after I had been talking about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. If you even look lustfully, you've already committed adultery in the heart. And he said, well, here in Texas, we figured a way around that. Uh, you know, you look once, and you're human. You look twice, you've sinned. Well, here's our little... Uh, loophole. He said, here in Texas, we just take one long look. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) Again, don't know what that has to do with Texas. But anyway, the the point he was making was was, um, we we have to distinguish a couple things. Number one, it's normal and, and natural and healthy that we are attracted to, as men, to a woman's womanhood, to her femininity. We don't have to pretend she's not a woman. We don't have to try to erase certain body parts. No, we, sh- we should rejoice in the integral beauty of her femininity. That is a good thing. But it can and often does become, and indeed in our culture, we are trained to have a kind of usurial attitude where we're not seeing the woman as a person. Mm-hmm made in the image and likeness of God, we're seeing her beauty as a thing, as an object to consume. And when that usurial attitude kicks in, or when it holds sway, maybe that's a better way to say it, because you're a fallen man, I'm a fallen man, the tendency in our fallen humanity, the church has a a word in her theology for this, it's called concupiscence, and concupiscence refers to the disordering of our passions, not just our sexual passions. But when I want to eat more potato chips than is reasonable, that's concupiscence. If I have ego temptations to want to, you know, step over people on the corporate ladder so I can get ahead, that's concupiscence. When my pride kicks in, that's concupiscence. So it's not just sexual, but in the sexual sphere, 
when our desires are of a usorial nature, when we're treating another person, not mm-hmm. as a person, but as a thing, uh, this is what we mean by lust. And this is what Jesus means by if you even look lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, it is possible that because sin is an, in the will, right? Sin is an act of the will. Uh, you know, if I'm walking down the street and here comes a, a scantily clad woman walking towards me and I feel a physical reaction just at the sight of her, I've not yet sinned. Even if that physical reaction is, is somewhat usorial in its character, mm-hmm. I have not sinned if I haven't engaged my will. This is a very important distinction. So I might feel concupiscence getting aroused. I might feel this usorial attitude coming over me. So long as I do not engage it with my will, so long as I do not foster that usorial attitude, I have not sinned. So this is an answer to your question. Even if your body reacts with concupiscence, concupiscence, this is the church's language, concupiscence comes from sin. In other words, it's the result of original sin. Remember those words of Jesus, in the beginning it was not so. Indeed, they were naked without shame in the beginning because they saw the beauty of the body integrally. They saw the beauty of the whole person. And their desire was not to use one another, but to love one another in the image of God. That went out the window with original sin. So concupiscence comes from original sin. It inclines us to sin. But here's the important point. It is not itself a sin Mm -hmm. unless we follow the leaning of concupiscence and engage our will. So here's, I'll just share what I've come to, to, has become habitual in my life when I'm tempted to look at a woman in a concupiscent way, in a lustful way. I will plant my flag, an act of my will, and I will say, you are a woman made in the image and likeness of God, never to be looked upon as an object for my pleasure. That's where I'm planting my flag with an act of my will. Mm -hmm. My body might be having its own reaction that is contrary to my will. But so long as I maintain my will not to engage in that temptation or to think in that way or to foster that thought, I have not sinned. Now, here's the good news. As we journey on this road, and this really becomes habitual in our lives, even the content and character of our sexual reactions begins to be purified and comes to a new level of maturity. John Paul II was the first person to tell me that this is possible, and it was liberation for me. He says in the theology of the body, and I can back this up with lived experience, and I know countless men who can as well, uh, not, that, not that any of us live it perfectly, we don't, but, but John Paul II says, and this is real, at first, the road to purity demands a very sharp and firm no, even while concupiscence might be raging, right? Avoiding the occasion of sin, looking the other way. Those are all very important things when concupiscence kind of has the upper hand in our lives. But as we mature, we, we mature from a negative experience of purity, which is primarily a no to concupiscence, to a much more positive experience of purity, 
where the very content and character of our sexual reactions is being purified and is being, it's growing in maturity and it's getting reconnected with the dignity of the person. John Paul II in Love and Responsibility says, the goal of chastity is to raise all of our sexual reactions to the level of the value and dignity of the person. Mm -hmm. That's real liberation. I'll say one more thing and then we'll have to leave it here because I talk too much. Uh, and I think we only got to two <laughs> questions again. Is that true? Did we only answer two questions so far? You know what? Sometimes within a question, I, I actually asked my own question after the first question. So maybe we'll count that as a second. Yeah, that was so okay. This that's is fair. Third, I, I was like a listener. You were you were a listener. That that whole one on uh, <laughs> yeah yeah genitals and marriage. That's if you right. don't yeah that was a that was another question. So we'll count that. <laughs> so what was I saying? Oh yes, one final thought here on knowing the difference between looking chastely and looking with a usurial attitude or a lustful. And can I just say another way to, would be like a sort of a shopping kind of mm -hmm. mentality. That's great, yeah. You know, like comparing the two different products and which one mm -hmm. do I want. I, I'm just saying that to illustrate the usurial mentality. Very, very insightful. And you can, any woman can attest to that, that how that robs your sense of yourself. Lust robs us of appreciating the true beauty of the person. But here's a characteristic mark of, of an authentic gaze of love. Right? When Jesus says, don't look lustfully, he's not saying, don't look. He's saying, learn how to see. Right? The lustful look falls under this uh, teaching of Jesus. They look but do not see. The lustful look is really blind. Mm -hmm. The lustful look is blind to the dignity of the person. The loving gaze is eyes wide open to the full dignity of the person with a corresponding yearning to honor the dignity of the person. And this will always involve the element of the cross. This is one of the pure indications that you are looking chastely, that you are not afraid of the suffering involved in seeing the person rightly and honoring the person rightly. And you're not in it for a cheap thrill, but you're in it, you want to see this person, you want to behold this person and the beauty of this person to honor that person's true dignity. And you are ready and willing to sacrifice anything to uphold that dignity. That's what we're getting at. If you can say that, my brother out there, then you can say, I'm looking chastely. Of course, you know, the journey here is not just a straight line upward. I can look back at my own life and see many victories and many times where I haven't had victories and I've fallen back into old patterns of thinking and evaluating. And so it's an ongoing challenge. As the Catechism says, self-mastery is never acquired once for all. It is an ongoing lifelong work and it demands a renewed stage of commitment all stages of life. So keep going, my brother. It is worth it. It is worth it. Amen. Amen to that. So I think we have come to the end of another episode. We really appreciate your questions, everybody. We invite you again to prayerfully consider becoming a patron of the Theology of the Body Institute. Even $5 a month helps us out. If you click the link there at the bottom of the page, scroll down to the, the show notes there. 
we offer lots of benefits to our patrons. We want to take you offline from the podcast and take you into some of the exclusive benefits that we offer our patrons. Video series, ongoing formation, our, our uh, exclusive Facebook group, special offers on our pilgrimages and other resources we have. Speaking of pilgrimages, we are going in 2019 this October 18th to the 23rd, we are going to visit the Tilma in Mexico City, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and we will be celebrating the feast day of John Paul II together from October 18th to the 23rd. That's our next pilgrimage. And then after that, February 15th to the 25th of 2020, the Theology of the Body Institute is leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. We're going to go to the very places where the Word made flesh walked, lived, taught, was crucified, died, and was buried. If that's exciting to you, prayerfully consider coming with us. And again, the information is in the show notes. We love you guys. We're so happy that we have so many faithful listeners. Please share the good news of this podcast with people who need to hear it. And remember, as John Paul II says, you are a person made in the image and likeness of God. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. big smile on his face as he said, wow, this place smells like... Concupiscence.